0: Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action, with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives, March 25th through 28th. Registration at EmpowerMissouri.org WOA.
1: The GOP primary for the U.S. Senate is less than two months away. And major contenders, like Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz, are trying to convince Republican voters that they'd be the best candidate to take on the Democrats in November. On this episode of Politically Speaking, the Sullivan Republican takes on an array of major issues and explains why he stands out in the GOP crowd. Let's hit the music.
2: This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics.
0: We have to talk about things that matter to people.
1: I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate.
2: I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first.
0: You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values.
1: After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in Jefferson City, she is St. Louis Public Radio's statehouse and politics reporter.
0: Sarah Kellogg.
1: And our special guest today, he is the Senate President Pro Tem of the Missouri Senate and a candidate for Missouri's U.S. Senate seat. Uh, Dave Schatz. Thank you very much, Senator, for joining us today. This is kicking off an unofficial series where we're going to be talking with Republican and Democratic contenders for the soon to be vacant US Senate seat. And we've had you on the show a few times before just if, if people haven't listened to those shows can you just remind our listeners like what your current position is, what your district is and and what the Senate president pro tem actually does. <laughs> well that that's a that's a great question Jason. Uh,
2: uh, obviously I'll start with the easy parts of that. Uh, I hail from Franklin County, which is the center of the 26th senatorial district, but I also have the western portions of St. Louis County, uh, Chesterfield, uh, Eureka, Wildwood areas uh, is in the 26th senatorial. Obviously the maps being redrawn will change that dynamic, but uh, I've represented that uh, area for the last uh, eight years. Uh, I think the 26th now becomes a little more, Franklin County still centered, but has some Warren County uh, as well into that in the new district. Uh, been fortunate for the last four years to serve as the president of pro tem. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know responsibilities comes along w- with that particular job, but obviously um, it, it allows me to uh, you know choose the uh, the chairmen of the committees. Obviously, we are um, the, uh, the as the pro tem. Uh, we discuss matters when it comes to challenges to the rules. Uh, we make those determinations that uh, we assign bills to committee. Uh, and take those bills in, get them on the calendar. And, and literally at the end of the day, a lot of people have described it as trying to keep frogs in a wheelbarrow. Uh, sometimes it is very challenging uh, dealing with all the personalities that we deal with, but at the end of the day, we keep the train uh, on the tracks and, and try to get uh, things through the process and try to help our members and also our minority members uh, to move things through the, through the legislature. And so I've uh, been able, fortunate enough and blessed to do that for the last four years.
0: So I guess kind of we're going to move on to to the job that you're running for. Uh, Why are you running uh, to become uh, Missouri's next U.S. senator?
2: You know, uh, this is not something that I necessarily had sought uh, out. It was just something I think sometimes politics about timing and opportunity Uh, in Missouri with term limits. um, I am at the end of my uh, eight year term in the Missouri Senate. Uh, and when Senator Blunt announced uh, that he was not going to seek re-election, it did come to mind uh, something that I would be interested in. Uh, as the field of candidates began to develop, uh, I did not see anyone necessarily that I felt like uh, could offer uh, what I believe Missouri needs to send to the United States Senate. And so uh, I made the determination that, that I would enter into that uh, into that race. Um, I think first and foremost, as I as I began to uh, work on that decision, I think about the reasons uh, that are things that are important to me. And obviously I I was blessed with five children. I have eight grandchildren, two on the way, uh, and I'm concerned about the future uh, and the world that they're going to live in and grow up in. I want them to have the same opportunities that I've enjoyed in my lifetime. Uh, and I believe uh, that I can, would, would be the right person to go uh, to Washington DC and fight for those, uh, those issues and those things that are going to be important. And I think it's gonna be important to my children and grandchildren uh, far into the future. And I see that there's a number of candidates, uh, Washington DC for a long time has not been working for everyday average citizens. Uh, and I see that as a problem. Uh, and I think sending someone there with the right values, the right mindset and for the right reasons is the reason I'm going. I think that we have a lot of folks that are entered in this race that are um, looking for the next office. They've been running from one to the next uh, and you know, trying to elevate themselves and find a way to get on Fox News. That's just not why I'm about going and wanting to be in Washington, D.C. I wanna go, I wanna work for Missouri, I wanna do the right things uh, and I'm not running for another job and therefore I believe I'm that right candidate. I'm a job creator, uh, I, I'm a small business owner. Uh, we've got uh, nearly probably half of the United States Senate are attorneys. Uh, we need more common sense business people like myself, uh, the job creators of the nation uh, serving in uh, the United States Senate.
0: You've touched on this a little bit, but how do you distinguish yourself from the other candidates that are running?
2: Well, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, you know, uh, in my last 12 years as as uh, in the Missouri legislature, uh, I've been a small business owner. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the week, I go back and I run a small business. I provide jobs uh, for over 100 families. We run a couple of uh, different businesses. Uh, and so we're in the business of providing, uh, you know, jobs, uh, you know, for people. Uh, and I think that that's one of the distinctions that when you look at some of the candidates, there may be some business experience but none i don't believe to the level that i have uh, again i think as i stated there's 43 attorneys uh, in uh, the united states senate right now i don't think we need any more attorneys in the united states senate there's a handful of small business people i'm not sure any of them to the level of small business uh, that actually a blue-collar business unlike myself and i think that that is one of the things that dis- distinguishes me between these other uh, career uh, seeking politicians that they're going there. And and I believe we need to send someone there like myself.
0: Public polling has shown that you are behind other candidates in the contest. How do you plan on moving up in the weeks ahead?
2: Well, uh, you know, obviously we've got to, uh, we've got to get our name out there. I know that we don't have the recognition that some of the folks that have ran statewide previously, and that is a challenge we face, but it, it, we're in the process of running uh, our media um, uh, and, and commercials are, are on the air waves. We intend to continue to saturate those airwaves. Uh, and hopefully as we can develop some momentum, uh, people will begin to know more and more uh, about who Dave Schatz is and what he stands for and why he's the right choice for the United States Senate.
0: One of the key differences is that you've decided to use your own money to finance your campaign. How does that give you an advantage or a disadvantage with your chances?
2: Well, uh, obviously, uh, yes, I, I, we, we were able to, uh, uh, to put some resources in. Obviously, we know that it's necessary. It's, it's, very, uh, it's a challenging process. Uh, it's unfortunate that, that the reality is that it requires uh, a, you know, a financial uh, strength in order to run a, an effective campaign. Uh, we knew because we waited. Uh, quite frankly, uh, we did not enter this race early. We did not begin the process of fundraising as some candidates did right out of the gate. Uh, Because, again, we were waiting to see if that field and how would ultimately fill out. And when uh, those candidates did not appear, uh, there were some people that I thought may get in this race that may make it uh, very challenging. But as those people uh, chose not to, that's when we made the decision that we felt like there was an opportunity for someone that has a record of actually getting things done. I think if you could look over the past uh, four years under my leadership in the Missouri Senate and the things we've been able to accomplish, I think that's what people are looking for. They're looking for someone that has a record of results. We can point to that. We're not just talking about it. They were, they were prefer action over just rhetoric and talk. And so uh, we've got it. Again, we'll have to spend some resources of our own to get our message out there. Uh, we're prepared to do that. We're also uh, raise some capital as well. And we believe that as we can move our numbers, we'll be able to attract some more investment into our campaign
1: uh, and bring people along for the ride. So let's dive up right into issues. The first issue that I want to talk about is the war in Ukraine. And this is going to be a disclosure preface whenever I talk about this issue. I am half Ukrainian. Both of my great grandparents came from Ukraine to Missouri in the 1900s. But I I probably have a different perspective on this than most Ukrainian Americans, just because the. Jewish experience in Ukraine was uh complicated to say the least. So, with that disclosure out of the way, do you support the United States continue continuing to give monetary and military support to Ukraine? Why or why not?
2: No, I I believe uh absolutely we need to, to do things. Obviously, you know, Vladimir Putin is a thug. Uh for him to Uh, unprovoked uh, go into the Ukraine and and continue to do what he's done is obviously, um, you know, uh, something that that we should not be uh, wanting to tolerate. Uh, I think we have to think very uh, wisely as we make decisions about whether whether or not we would ever engage and deploy uh, any of our our American soldiers into that region. But I do believe that by providing some financial support and some resources there, uh, is necessary uh again there are a lot of innocent people i actually attend church i've got some folks there that had adopted three children from ukraine uh they've been over there they've been uh some of those people have went back they're helping uh in in whatever way that they can to try to assist in this process we're seeing you know the things that are occurring over there uh are uh, it's just tragic to see what vladimir putin and, and russia has done up to this point and so do i think that that the ukraine has issues that need to be resolved absolutely i think that they have some some uh, corruption issues in their government but obviously right now we're seeing um, again them pull together uh, pull their country together and fighting for what they believe uh, is a sovereign country and i think we're going to have to stand in there and support them uh, and make sure that we do it in a financial fiscally responsible way that, that the resources
1: get to where they can be utilized uh in the best fashion and that actually uh parlays into my next question. Would you have voted for the $40 billion aid package that was recently signed into law?
2: You know, I I would say more than likely that I would have. I haven't seen all of the details. Uh, I do think that, again, there's some Uh, There's not a perfect piece of legislation uh, that ever uh, gets passed in any chamber, whether it's in the Missouri Senate or the uh, United States Congress, Uh, but as part of, you know, whether or not we should have uh, provided some funding, absolutely we should have, and so more than likely I support uh, the fundings there, there probably could have been some changes made in there that I think we would have all would have preferred um, and uh, and making sure that the you know, there there were some financial constraints and making sure it gets to the right places. But at the end of the day, uh, I probably would have supported uh, the funding package again, any time that we're not sending and deploying American troops and we'll be able to spend some resources to be able to defeat uh, a Russian enemy, uh, I think it's probably a good investment.
1: What do you make of some Republicans who are arguing that Congress should not focus on Ukraine and should focus on domestic issues?
2: Well, I think you have to have a balance. Uh, But if, you know, Jason, I truly believe that if you uh, see, you know, some of the effects of what uh, has occurred in our economy because of what's happening in Ukraine, um, the number one uh, industry in the state of Missouri is agriculture. Uh, the amount of, of, of effect that we've seen in the in the price of fertilizer coming a lot of fertilizer and things that is produced in the Ukraine uh, that is that is shipped into the United States. We're seeing double and triple the prices of fertilizer from last year, uh, the amount of sunflowers uh, and sunflower oil that's produced in the Ukraine. There's a num- number of agriculture issues that ultimately are going to affect uh, our economy. And so it's uh, you know, it is something that we have to be aware with uh again and so we have to take that into account strategically um all of the resources that are are being produced outside of the united states and make sure that uh, we make our decisions you know that because they're going to ultimately impact us
0: moving on to the topic of inflation obviously republicans have been very critical of how president biden has dealt with the issue of inflation as a senator what policies would you pursue to help alleviate that problem
2: well, I think first and foremost, uh, we've got to get our financial house in order. Uh, just like we've done in the state of Missouri, year after year, we balanced the state's budget. We live within our means. Uh, the federal government, uh, you know, obviously has not learned that lesson. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if they would take one thing that we could, we could take to Washington, D.C. and show them that is that is one thing that's been affected. Uh Inflation, you know, the United States government has this, uh, you know, huge printing press that they continue to devalue the American dollar, but I also believe that the, the Biden administration's Energy policy has really, uh, you know, had an impact on inflation. Uh, I'm a I'm a small business guy. I put a number of uh, people in trucks every day, large trucks, to to get uh, them back and forth to work. And the cost of getting those people back and forth to work every day is skyrocketing. Uh, and but that's going to have a trickle down effect to everyone in this economy. When you go to the average individual drives up to a gas pump, and it costs 150 dollars to fill up their vehicle. That's going to have an impact on their ability to uh, to spend uh, those resources in other places, and so. And Biden's energy policy is a direct result of some of the things that he took when he took office day one. Uh, and so we need to change that. We need to be energy interdependent. We need obviously we can we can work our way and migrate toward towards, you know, um, you know, greener energy and opportunities. But again, shutting the pipeline down, doing some of the things that have led to these uh, you know historic high gas prices has led a lot to the inflation that we're seeing right now.
0: When Republicans controlled the White House and the Senate, they passed massive spending bills to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you think that contributed to inflation issues? Well,
2: I think it obviously had some. Uh, Again, I think any time when we spend uh, with, again, there is an appropriate time occasionally for the federal government to maybe have to spend in times of uh, national disasters and emergencies where maybe we would go beyond living you know the the amount of resource that we have coming in uh, but it should be very rare it should, but again it's just become a not you know everyday occurrence uh washington dc is has continued to live above their means uh and they've become accustomed to it and no one's willing to cut you know the the financial constraints uh and 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 pull back in those issues but we need to put somebody in there that's willing to do that to make the hard decisions fund the things that are necessary but cut back on the things that aren't necessary
0: Another reality is that demand for certain goods has skyrocketed since people started re-entering society. But supply chain issues have been fairly vexing. Is that something the government can even effectively intervene in?
2: You know, uh, again, p- part of that has been policy issues that have led to some of the supply chain crisis that we've seen. Uh, when we, uh, a lot, you know, we went out, we paid some people to stay home, obviously getting people back into the workforce. Uh, is, has been a challenge uh, businesses, you know, you know, have cut down on, on shifts and the ability to be able to produce the amount of goods. Obviously we rely heavily on things that are imported into the United States, whether it's computer chips and things that, that the car manufacturing industry have seen those same type of electronics affect the, you know, the equipment industry and things. And so we're seeing this, this shortage uh, of, of, of availability of of these types of products. We're also seeing concerns, uh, again, there may be some serious concerns when it comes to being able to get uh, products moved across uh, this country. You know, one thing about Missouri, uh, just briefly, you know, we are the distribution hub of the United States. Uh, and whenever we see the cost of fuel skyrocketing and stuff, it's going to make it's going to be challenged to be able to move products, you know, throughout this country and get them there in a timely uh, manner. And so, all of that being combined is is part of what's led us to the the
1: debacle the that we're in right now. Moving on to abortion rights, you were president of the Missouri Senate when the state enacted legislation that would ban most abortions if Roe versus Wade is overturned. It had other things in it, but obviously that trigger law is getting a lot of attention after the Politico draft uh, leak. Some Democrats in, in Congress want to pass legislation to enshrine the right to an abortion in every state. What would be your posture if you're in the United States Senate? No, I I
2: believe that uh, I think Missouri got it right. Uh, I think that when we enacted, uh, you know, uh, what I would consider to be some of the strongest pro-life legislation in the nation, uh, when we put a trigger mechanism in in place, uh, for me personally, uh, I I am someone who believes that life begins at conception. uh, And so uh, I I support ending abortion in this state. Uh, I think that if uh, given the opportunity to continue to support that position in Washington, D.C., I'll take that same position.
1: The trigger law does not make any exceptions for women who become pregnant because of rape or incest. And there has been some conjecture that that is a bridge too far for voters, even people that do not like the concept of abortion. What what would you make of the criticism of the lack of exceptions?
2: You know, again, I think that uh, from, from my perspective, obviously, again, uh I, i've never uh you know from from faith perspective i don't believe uh, that uh, making two mistakes two mistakes makes nothing right uh and so again it's unfortunate uh that these situations occur uh but by, by, by choosing to end someone's life uh, is not uh, you know an acceptable process and so uh, again my my faith and my belief does not allow me to believe that uh, uh anything that again as i said life begins at conception i know it's a challenging issue for some uh, and again, I think that uh, uh, that is a conversation that will continue on uh, if if that is uh, if we we truly see if the, if the Supreme Court ruling does come down uh, as we have have uh, been somewhat leaked information, if that is the case. And then we'll be having these conversations, I believe, at a state uh, statewide level into the future.
0: How do you think this issue will affect the general election? There's been some conjecture that it'll energize female voters everywhere, while voters who oppose abortion rights may be complacent. What do you think?
2: I think there are people are passionate on both sides of this issue, uh, and so I'm not sure it, it gives anyone any particular advantage one way or the other. Uh, if this again this becomes uh, an issue, but I think that there again it's been a, it's been probably one of the most. Uh, divisive issues in, in my lifetime, uh, you know, since Roe versus Wade uh, became um, uh, effective. It's just been, it's been an ongoing conversation and I think matters of life have, will always rise to that occasion. So I think that uh, regardless of which side of the issue you are, and you're very passionate uh, in what you believe.
1: We'll be back after this quick break with more Politically Speaking with Senate President Pro Tem Dave Schatz. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Senate President Pro Tem, Dave Schatz, he is a candidate for the US Senate and also a Republican state senator from Franklin County. I wanna move on to gun rights because obviously that's a that's a major issue, even when there it isn't in the national consciousness like it is now, but I have often found that this is an issue that will energize voters one way or the other. Are, are there any restrictions on guns that you would be amenable to? if this issue comes up while you're a United States Senator?
2: You know, Jason, we would have to look very closely uh, at at what those issues are. Obviously, this is a a very uh, uh, challenging subject right now. I mean, what we've seen in in tragic circumstances over the last few weeks and what's occurred um, is is terrible. Uh, But again, at the end of the day, um, it's not the weapon that is the problem. It is a matter uh, of, of whether or not it is a, a mental health issue, um, it, if it's, an, it's issues obviously that the, a matter of the heart, I believe that are ultimately driving people to make some of these decisions. And so uh, it's never, I don't believe it's the issue, it's because of the gun. It's because there's something wrong with the individual. So uh, I, I have strongly supported the Second Amendment right. I believe in the right uh, of individuals, uh, you know, to defend themselves. Uh, And again, uh, any time we would have a conversation of of prohibiting someone from doing that, I think would be a serious conversation as to whether or not uh, what, what they would be proposing.
1: I want to follow up on the mental health point, because I think that that has been something that Republicans have brought up, and frankly, Democrats have too. But I've seen some advocates for certain types of mental health diagnoses really push back against this idea that if you have some sort of mental health issue, then you shouldn't have access to a gun. Because if you make that sort of blanket declaration, it's not only a Second Amendment issue, that's a 14th Amendment equal protection issue, especially if the mental health diagnosis does not actually link to a violent incident. So I'd like you to address that that point, because that's been getting a lot of pushback from uh, actually a pretty diverse group of political people.
2: Yeah, and I and I believe it uh, again. It is a challenging subject. Uh, I do think that the individuals that we've seen some of these um, horrific acts that have occurred have to have some. Uh, mental um, problems that they're experiencing at the time when these things occur, uh, but but to say that you know we can categorize all anyone with a mental illness as someone that's not fit to to be uh, able to defend themselves or own a firearm, I don't think that we can do that. Uh, it would be it would be a very slippery slope uh, if we were to go down that path. I'm not sure what is the appropriate measures. Uh, when we talk about people with mental health issues, but I would I would be f- fearful that it would be used, uh, you know, as a tool uh, potentially to to harm individuals. And so we've seen circumstances where there are people that obviously uh, relationships end. Uh, they may claim someone has a mental health issue in order to, uh, you know, prohibit them from being able to enjoy, uh, you know, their livelihood and and protecting themselves. So I'm a little concerned uh, again of of how we could. Could implement something when it comes to mental health as to whether someone should be able to uh, possess or own a firearm. It it, it will be a very challenging uh, process uh, if if that is if that's something that becomes part of the conversation.
0: Missouri passed a law under your tenure that would fine police departments that enforce federal gun laws that are not already on the books in the state. Some have said this bill makes the state less safe. What do you say to that?
2: You know, I don't know that you can directly attribute it to that, uh, that it makes this state less safe. Uh, again, I think that at the end of the day, you know, the, the SAPA legislation that was passed was, was obviously put into place for a protection, basic protection to say that, you know, no law enforcement agency uh, shall engage in the unlawful uh, taking of a weapon from a Missouri uh, citizen uh, that would be mandated by the federal government or by uh, some uh, executive order. Uh, on its face, I believe strongly that that is the right uh, approach, uh, that we should not have the federal government coming in, um, Missourians, and uh, having them, co- our law enforcement cooperating with federal agencies to take away the law-abiding uh, citizens' right to, to, to protect themselves and defend themselves. Whether that, you know, that in particular, you could point specifically to whether that's made us unsafe. I think the things that's made us unsafe is the lack of prosecution uh, in, in in our state. We've seen uh, prosecutors in a number of areas, obviously unwilling to prosecute, prosecute criminals. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we need to be focusing on upholding the law, uh, making sure that we're holding people accountable and putting criminals in jail. Uh, that would be uh, the most effective. Now, there may be some challenges with uh, the le- legislation, but if anyone in law enforcement that worked with me during the time when we were negotiating the SEPA, obviously I engaged with them on a routine basis. They were in my office. We talked about the effects of this and ultimately at the end of the day, they agreed uh, that when that legislation moved forward, that they were okay with it moving forward uh, because of the modifications and changes that we were trying to, that we were trying to bring to the table at that time, um, they, they were satisfied. Again, you know, like I said, there's never a perfect piece of legislation that's ever passed. Uh, but there, you know, if there's some changes in, that need to be looked at, law enforcement probably should engage in, in bringing those issues to the legislature and trying to make some changes uh, going into the future.
0: One issue that seems to be gaining some traction is a so-called red flag law, which would create a judicial process to remove firearms from someone who is clearly a danger to others. What do you think of that policy?
2: Well, again, I, that is uh, I, I think that is a slippery slope. Uh, I believe that would be used weaponized against people uh, at any given time. Uh, and so I'm probably uh, very concerned about uh, you know implementing any kind of a red flag law where where it wouldn't where ultimately in the, the day it would be misused and abused.
0: What about background checks? Would that prevent guns from being sold to people who forfeited the rights to own one?
2: Um, I probably need to understand what context. I believe that uh, obviously we do have background checks when you purchase a weapon. Um, you, there are background checks th- that obviously you go through the NICS system, uh, and ultimately, uh, you know those those purchases are covered from from that perspective. And so, uh, I believe we currently have a system that does that.
1: Let, let's move on to transportation policy because that's something that you, that's been your bal- ballywic. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, I'll, I'll 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 allow it for myself. Sure. What would you do as a U.S. senator to kind of further Missouri's uh, transportation infrastructure?
2: Well, one of the things, uh, obviously, I I can tell you from my experience of working with Senator Blunt, um, you know, when we were able to pass a, a bonding proposal, uh, here in the state, there was a mechanism in there that required us to receive federal funding. Uh, and in the amount, we, we put a, a trigger amount that unless we received a certain amount of money that, that that bonding proposal would not move forward. And i seen firsthand how important it was to have someone in Washington, DC that was willing to fight for transportation funding. Not only did Senator Blunt um, exceed uh, the, the amount that we had, uh, had put before him in, in, in need, uh, to ultimately to rebuild the Roachport Bridge on I-70, a very critical thoroughfare for uh, um, the infrastructure and, and transportation issues. the Senator Blunt was able to bring home uh, far and above, you know, the resources necessary to accomplish that bridge, but also to build the buckle O'Neill Bridge uh, in Kansas City. Uh, those needing someone there in Washington, D.C. that's willing to go in have the ability to fight for those resources and understand how important those resources are uh, to our state, but also to the, to, to the national economy. Uh, shutting down I-70 uh, and repairing a bridge that was proposed would have been catastrophic to manufacturing and people and, and times we we're able to build a new bridge right beside the one that's there ultimately at the end of the day. But that's the partnership. But having someone in D.C. that's passionate about transportation, understands how valuable it is. And that's why I believe I'm the right person. It's not been no secret. I've been passionate about transportation funding my entire career and 12 years in the legislature. I'll be as passionate in Washington, D.C. about doing the things I think government should do. And infrastructure is one of the core functions that, that the federal government should be engaged in.
0: If there's any main source of criticism that's been lobbed at you during this campaign, also just during the legislature this year, it's your support of a gas tax increase that passed the legislature and was signed into law why was this a good thing, especially since Republicans typically rail against tax increases?
2: Well, here, but the one thing that people get lost in the weeds is this. This was part of a negotiated package when we passed the gas tax. We obviously passed the Wayfair, uh issue as well, which was included in it was a cut, an income tax cut. Uh, in my time in the legislature, we have passed, you know, personal income tax, reduced personal income tax by 20 percent. We've taken uh, that, some of that investment and we put it back in in infrastructure. It is, it is clear that for 100 years, we have been paying for our roads and bridges through the, through the motor fuel user fee. Uh, we have not addressed it for 26 years. I'm a business person and I'm about solving problems. At the end of the day, uh, that's, that's what I think people are looking for. I could have not have in good faith, in good conscience left the Missouri legislature with one of the biggest problems facing our state was being able to fund transportation needs. And so by passing uh, Senate Bill 262, we addressed something that hadn't been done for 26 years. And we did it with the majority support of Republicans in the House and, the, and, and a bipartisan support in the Senate and the governor, lieutenant governor, supported this. I know that it's one of these things are very challenging for individuals, but at the end of the day, you cannot ignore problems and you can't wait for the next election cycle to address those. And so I'm not someone that's run away from those issues. I've embraced them and I solve problems. I'll solve the same problems if I'm elected to Washington, D.C. and do the same thing. I'll take on the tough issues. I'll guarantee you that there's probably not a candidate in this race that would want to take on this tough issue. But I'm a candidate that has.
1: Well, let's let's in our final topic. Let's talk about like one of the toughest issues that's afflicting Missouri and America today. And that's racial race relations. What would you do as a U.S. senator to bridge societal and governmental divides between the government and black people?
2: You know, Jason, that's a challenge. I, I'm not sure that I have a great answer for that. Uh, obviously, we need to continue to work uh, on, on bringing people together. We need unity for all people, all people, uh, you know. Obviously, we've had uh, a breakdown in, in relationships with law enforcement uh, in the process. One thing we need to do, and I've been, a you know, an advocate and a champion for was finding uh, and getting the necessary training and resources for officers, making sure we have quality uh, people uh, doing the job, uh, and that is key. Uh, making sure that those individuals interact uh, you know with, with the, the public uh, in the right way. Uh, and that comes by having well-trained, qualified people to do those jobs. And so that's been something that I've been been concerned about uh, and have worked on in my time in the legislature. How the federal government could, could improve those, um, I'm not sure exactly. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the local neighborhood, uh, the local municipality, and how that they ultimately uh, interact with their constituents and their folks. Uh, and those are going to be uh, on, a, on a smaller level. We can do things at the state and federal level. But again, at the end of the day. It comes down to closer to where uh, those people reside.
1: And that was going to be my final question to you. Do you even think that the federal government has a role in fostering a better relationship between law enforcement and African-Americans, or, or, or is it really a state and local issue? Well, I,
2: I think that there there may be some things uh, at a federal level that make sense. Uh, but again, I've, I've seen the federal government mess up a lot of things. I'm not sure that this is an area that they can ultimately prevail in, but I do think it's a local issue, more more than likely. But again, they can create and foster an environment that tries to help that uh, those local areas begin to develop and build those those bridges necessary. But again, uh, it's probably more suited either on a local issue or state's issue than it is a federal issue.
1: Well, Senator, thank you so much for providing a lot of your time to talk about the big issues that are afflicting the state and country. Politically speaking, is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can find all of our stories at stlpr.org. You can follow me on Twitter at jrosenbaum. Sarah, how can people follow you on Twitter?
0: They can follow me on Twitter at Sarah K. Kellogg. That's two L's, two G's.
1: And Senator, how can people find out more about your campaign, either through social media or the World Wide Web? Dave Shots for Senate. That's uh, that's where they can find uh, information for us. We'll be back next time. And until then, so long.